Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Tech Strong Women, where we feature amazing women doing amazing things in tech. I'm Jody Ashley, executive producer here at TechStrong, and I'm here with my co-host, Tracy Reagan, creator and CEO of Deploy Hub. And in her free time, she works with the Linux Foundation, where she sits on the boards of the OpenSSF and the CDF Technical Oversight Committee. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to give you a quick update on events happening at TechStrong. Be sure to register for the TechStrongCon 2023 virtual event on March 16th. Speaker submissions are still open and we always love sponsors. TechStrong will also be hosting our annual DevOps Connect DevSecOps Day at RSAC in San Francisco on April 24th. Be sure to look for us on Broadcast Alley all week. Stop by and say hi. You can register for all of our events by going to techstrongevents.com and be sure to tune in every day to TechStrong TV for great shows and interviews. Okay, Trace, what's on your mind today? <laughs> All right. So when I say the word uh, uh, TikTok, what do you think? Oh, crazy, weird videos. <laughs> <laughs> well, I often think of, you know, the U.S. government saying if you're part of the government, you can't have it on your any of your uh, any of your end devices. Well, this popped up this week. Um, the U.S. Uh, U.S. companies, Intel and Qualcomm, has uh, kind of lead led the charge on this. Has invested over forty billion dollars in um, Chinese AI companies. Now, I find that a, maybe somewhat it could potentially be a bit alarming for us. I know that the Biden administration is about to uh, cut back or maybe put an executive order out there about investing in Chinese companies, but. You know, AI is an interesting space in the first place, uh, and to have that much money invested in a, in a Chinese company, I just think is a is certainly newsworthy. <laughs> I mean, if we can't, you you know, if, if we're worried about watching uh, something that just gives us funny videos, um, how will we respond to AI software, especially if it's medical or legal um, or has anything to do with government regulations? I think it's just an interesting. A data point. Let's just call it that. A data point. Reuters reported it. Uh, um, so, if, you know, if you're interested in the article, it recently came out in Reuters. Oh wow! Yeah, there's so much going on with TikTok and AI. It's kind of overwhelming my brain these days. I can't keep up. <laughs> well, I would love to introduce you all to our guest today, Jamie Thomas. Jamie, can you tell us a little bit about you and what you're up to these days? Well, thank you, ladies, for having me on the Tech Strong program. And that article does sound fascinating, Tracy. Uh, I'm Jamie Thomas, and I am a um, executive in IBM. Uh, my team's an innovation team in IBM. We're responsible for designing uh, the semiconductors and the systems for IBM's hardware offerings. So the team works on our Z systems power, and we also work on our quantum computing uh, electronics. I'm also responsible for worldwide manufacturing and IBM. And my side gig, if you will, is enterprise security, which is the CISO office for the IBM Corporation. And that's how I met Tracy, because we sit together on the board of the OpenSSF Linux Foundation. So it's a pleasure to be here with all of you. Well, we're happy to have you, uh, Jamie. And I know you have a super busy schedule, so we are honored to, have, to really to have you sit down with us and, and chat. You know, you and I've had some interesting conversations about your role in the government, and you've enlightened me in so many areas. I am very curious about what you think about that article I just, just broke on. 
<laughs> well, what I what I would say is that the the geopolitical landscape is definitely shifting as we've seen over the last few years with the concern about our supply chains in general. You know, what what are the supply chains, both from a software perspective and certainly in my domain, a hardware perspective. Uh, where are our dependencies? And in some cases, are we over-dependent in, in, in certain areas? Uh, so I think that uh, one of the things that government is looking to do is make sure that the supply chains remain resilient and secure uh, across a lot of different dimensions of the business, uh, business domains, if you will, that are critical to the United States in particular. Uh, but I, my perspective is this tends to shift and it continues to shift over the next few weeks and uh, at last few uh, years, if you will. And what I think we all have to do in businesses like mine is just really be, be prepared for ongoing shifts and think about what that means from a resiliency perspective for our businesses. Yeah, I didn't see it didn't say what kind of AI software was uh, being um, invested in, um, but I kind of have this suspicion that there'll be some core AI software that is going to be released, but there's also going to be reusable software. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some of these algorithms for for this intense like pattern matching, um, think about pattern map uh, matching on maps um, and kind of rule based uh, systems. I think we're going to start having those will be part of our software supply chain. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you know obviously artificial intelligence is already so prevalent in everything we do. If I think about just our cyber operations, we don't survive on a daily basis without layers of AI. And I think we're all investing in the next uh, generation of AI, things like foundation models, et cetera. Um, I do think that some of this technology is the next battlefield, if you will. Um, And so defining what the government needs to worry about from an intellectual property perspective and everything is probably a a challenging uh, thing to do. Uh, because everything is 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 going to be more rooted in artificial intelligence as we go forward. Well, I kind of it's interesting how much uh, we've heard from the U.S. government um, in terms of technology. Uh, mm-hmm. The Biden administration's uh, uh, executive order on S bombs, uh, his potential restriction of investment in China, um, and the chip uh, uh, bill that got passed. That was something that we talked about when we were in uh, in Tahoe. Um, and my question to you then, and I'm going to ask it again, how long will it take and how much money? Um, there was another article, actually, that uh, a company out of Japan that is a government um, funded company that builds chips. They claim that they were going to need about fifty seven billion dollars to build a new chip manufacturing plant. I was shocked. Um, but tell us some of the things you told me about the chip bill and how quickly you think we're going to be up and running and independent. Well, I, I do think the CHIPS Act is particularly important for the resiliency of the United States and for other supply chains around the world, Europe, et cetera. Really, when you look at the landscape of chip production today, there's three main fabricators in the world. There's Intel here in the United States, there's TSMC in Taiwan, and there's Samsung in Korea. Those are the dominant players, if you will, that are producing, uh, fabricating these chips. And it is true that a very large chip facility uh, definitely can consume $100 billion in investment. Uh, what we saw during the supply chain uh, situation is that we were very dependent on Taiwan. That so many of the world's supply of chips, whether they were for automobiles or IT uh, offerings, if you will, were coming from Taiwan. And so it became a huge bottleneck, an eye-opener 
to really the state of chip production uh, worldwide. That then caused governments, I think, to step back and say, what are we going to do about this? In fact, many believe that the semiconductors are far more important than the oil supply. You may have seen some of these articles written that our dependency on semiconductors is as strong as our dependency on oil. We saw that the automobile industry lost um, billions of dollars by not having the chips to actually finish production of those cars. Mm-hmm. So this bill is very important. I do think that whether we continue to, well, obviously there's going to be interconnected supply chains for a while. We're going to work with Asian companies and many of them are actually building a fabrication capability here in the United States. When you look at what TSMC and Taiwan are doing, uh, Intel has announced their intention to have an independent fabrication facility so they can work with other partners outside of Intel to create chips, et cetera. This is going to be very, very important for resiliency going forward. Is there a concern that you have around the geopolitical situation between Taiwan and China? Well, I'm not, I can't profess to be a, a government expert. When you read right. the articles, though, there continues to be a lot of saber, saber rattling yeah. as to whether uh, China's intention is to uh, you know, take over Taiwan or blockade ta- Taiwan. Um, I can't profess to have a crystal ball into those right. situations. But it is clear, regardless of that, that the, the, the Taiwan uh, fabrication facility became a, a significant bottleneck to operational fidelity for a lot of different industries. And I can tell you, even for my uh, industry here, uh, we had to do a lot of additional work to procure the commodity-based chips that we need. I actually have on my desk the the processor for the the mainframe. The Z processor is packaged inside of this. This is the chip here, the thing that runs the mainframe. Our (laughs) chip is actually produced by Samsung. That specialized chip is produced by Samsung in Korea. However, like many other uh, IT, complex IT offerings, uh, the mainframe is dependent on many, many different commodity chips. And so we were also a part of that supply chain trying to garner the supply that we needed as we shipped that new machine last year. A hundred billion dollars investment to get. (laughs) So now the 57 billion sounds like a a not really. It's really not that much. It is quite a lot of money. I mean, I know that... uh, when you look at the Samsung and the TSMC factories, there's there's hundreds of billions of dollars of investment there. Uh, and those countries, if you look at not only those companies, but those countries have chosen uh, to make a stake in that domain uh, some time ago. And they're reaping the benefit of that, uh, that investment uh, decision. And I think the North America Chips Act was a recognition of the ecosystem that they've been able to build. And with that, that I said, those companies as well are interested in working in North America and being a part of the ecosystem as we go forward as well. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Now, in chip manufacturing, is there um, proprietary um, technology around chip manufacturing that the U.S. owns or or that Taiwan owns or that gets in our way of well, being able great. to... Yeah, great question. And actually, I can say that uh, at IBM, we're very lucky to own a lot of that intellectual property. So IBM being one of the oldest firms around in terms of the construction of chips for obvious reasons, because the mainframe itself has been around for a long time, we invested in in intellectual property around chip fabrication from day one. 
And years ago, we did own our own fabrication facility, which we divested of a few years ago, but we maintained our intellectual property in chip fabrication technology. And we have, in fact, licensed our technology to other players. So we have licensed our fabrication technology to Samsung some time ago, and we did license it to Intel a few years ago as we led up to the uh, construction of the North America Chips Act. That is a heavy investment for IBM, uh, intellectual property around fabrication of chips. So while we do not own a fab, we're very invested in that area. And we do offer um, a lot of partnerships with other players as we work together to improve the ecosystem here in North America. Well, I think this is going to be a space to watch um, over the course of the next, you know, I'd say even three years, considering our geopolitical environment right now and however China may um, see appropriate to either what their relationship will be with Taiwan moving forward. Right. And, and you know, even before this uh, came about, the geopolitical landscape, clearly we saw with COVID-19 a very strong dependence on factories in China. Uh, and uh, as they uh, went through waves of COVID-19 and shut down and reopened those factories, you could see the impact that it was having on industries here, aside from the chip situation, even in Taiwan. So it's it really says that we have to be very thoughtful about supply chains and making sure that we have options and resiliency as we go forward in the future. Uh, I mean, I can tell you here at IBM, when the COVID-19 uh, situation first uh, happened, we were like many other uh, firms and we needed masks for our field workers, for workers that had to go out and help clients repair uh, machines and whatnot. And we didn't have the mask. So I'm proud to say that my team figured out a way to manufacture masks for the IBM company in a very short order uh, because we had the we had the ability to do manufacturing. We, we were able to do that. But that was another case in point. We did not have masks here in the United States either, right, to deploy at scale. Well, I think that COVID-19 taught us how globally connected we all are um, and what, what we really do have a global economy. Uh, we have one problem in one area. I mean, wheat is still a problem because of what Ukraine's going through. Uh, right. So it's uh, we are all definitely connected uh, and it would be a different kind of a, you know, World War II and World War One. we didn't have this. I don't think yeah. we are this interconnected. Right. Um, another world war would impact all everybody in a, in, a, in a very different way in terms of products and services that we've become so accustomed to. Absolutely. I think we'll never go back to the way we were before, where we were more regionalized. Um, the interdependency is there uh, for good reasons. Uh, a lot of this interdependency has lifted uh, millions and millions of people around the world out of poverty. So there's been really good outcomes for it uh, along with it. Uh, and then there's other things we probably need to think about uh, more thoughtfully as we go forward to make sure at least you have different options. And we learned a lot of that in COVID-19, where manufacturers moved things perhaps from one country to another country, and they took advantage of whatever resiliency they did have, because it was a factor of illness in those countries shutting down uh, the factory and not necessarily, of course, a geopolitical situation. Well, maybe there's a silver lining that maybe it was a wake-up call, right? Yeah, I think so. I think it was a wake-up call. I, I would say, Tracy, before COVID-19, I think we took our supply chains uh, for granted. It was like the plumbing. You wake up in your in the morning, you expect your plumbing to work. You don't really think about it. 
Uh, we also took advantage. We also took for granted that the freight was going to be fairly cheap. You know that we could get things from point A to point B very quickly. And then when all of the air flights stopped, because there was in fact no one flying on these airplanes, a lot of the air cargo was also disintermediated. And then we also saw the challenges with shipping, where the ships piled up uh, so deep in some of the ports that you couldn't get the products off the ships. So I think we took a lot of things for granted before COVID and hopefully don't forget, we, we, we will not easily forget, hopefully, the learning lessons from all of that, because I think there's a lot of good learning from it. I agree. I mean, I think we all became supply chain experts and <laughs> understanding in a way that no one expected to. Um, my husband used to say it's really easy to turn the spigot off, but it's really slow to turn it back on and get everything moving again. Oh, and really? I think COVID showed us really quickly with all that backing up everywhere, you know, truck drivers we didn't have to get stuff out of the ports and the ports were buried. And it was, yeah, I think. I think I try and be a cup half full because I can't get through stuff that's really negative like COVID was without hearing the positive. And I think a lot of positive came out of it. I think we learned about baby formula and we learned about the supply chain. We learned about masks and other supplies that we need and gloves and all that sort of stuff. It's it's definitely, I can't imagine what kind of challenges IBM faced, you know? Sounds like you guys did a really good job. The mask thing is amazing. That's really impressive. Yeah, I love that story. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> the team that did all of that is very proud of what they accomplished. And being IBM, of course, they tested these masks like you would not believe. So I'm convinced we had very effective masks. So I, if I get one of them, I hold on to it because I think it's probably a good good mask. <laughs> so let's shift for a minute. I mean, the, the other thing that we learned um, recently, uh, this had nothing to do with COVID, but we had something called Log4J that created what is definitely a security awakening around open source. Um, for those of you who don't know, Jamie is the fearless leader, uh, chair of the uh, Open Source Security Foundation, the Open SSF, under the Linux Foundation. She is the chair of the governing board, and she has recently been uh, reelected to that position, and she was uncontested. Nobody else wanted to take it on because she does such a great job. <laughs> um, Jamie, why don't you tell, tell us a little bit about the Open SSF and what they're up to? Okay, well, first of all, thanks to Tracy as well for being on the governing board and, and being a participant in many of our committees. We really appreciate her participation. Uh, but I think when we joined this, uh, this board a little over a year ago, we had no idea what was in front of us because we formed this new governing board in November of 2021. And then right after that, uh, Log4J happened in, in December. Uh, and Log4J was an earth-shattering event for the IT industry because it was a, a risk to the open source software supply chain. And Log4J had been out there for 20 years, probably. It was a, a very widely used uh, logging facility uh, used in software widely. I know in IBM, it was one of, our, one of our most used components. So it was therefore in many, many of our offerings as it was for many, many organizations. So we all had to embark on a patching effort, if you will, to, to pick up the uh, changes required to remediate Log4J and get that deployed across all of our offerings, as did any organization that was using those offerings across the world. 
I have talked to many stakeholders in various different industries, and they said Love for Jay ruined their holiday that year, <laughs> uh, and it uh, ruined their their ensuing uh, New Year's and 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 weeks after that, uh, just uh, getting all of that taken care of. I think in in general, uh, uh, most organizations did a very good job, but once again, there was a big learning experience from that. And what Tracy and I and others saw as part of the Linux Foundation is we became extremely popular because the OpenSSF became a a natural committee, if you will, to provide uh, insight into how to solve this problem going forward. How do you solve uh, this for the next incident that may occur? How do you make automation more effective? How do you make open source developers more effective in uh, producing software that is secure out of the gate? Um, and that's what we've been embarked on in the last year is how how can our organization and the organizations that are participating in OpenSSF really make a difference in ensuring that open source remains secure and effective for generations of developers going forward. We did get quite a bit of attention from the U.S. government and the White House, uh, the OpenSSF um, members. A um, uh, few of us were invited uh, to the White House a few times last year as the White House looked intently and what should the policy be for open source security going forward. Um, If you follow uh, the U.S. government and CISA and many of those organizations, there have been hundreds and hundreds of uh, pages of paper actually devoted to open source security and what needs to be done across industries to make sure that industries are resilient and safe from ransomware, cyber attacks, et cetera. It's a very, very very hot topic. And as Brian Bellendorf, who is, um, I guess you'd relate him to the CEO of the uh, OpenSSF, he calls us the Calvary. Uh, we are the Calvary. We are there to fix the problem. And I, I don't, you know, I when we talk about Log4j, I often feel bad for the guy who wrote it. Um, you know, there's one person who'd been supporting literally millions of lines of code uh, for companies around the world for the last 20 years. It's one person. Um, and I think that we learned something from there, kind of like COVID. Uh, that is probably a weak link in the system. And remember, some companies, they didn't have the ability to easily um, rebuild some of that software. Some of that software, I mean, we, some of the financial organizations we work with had retired applications that are still in use, but they're only there to fix bugs on a very rare occasion and to have to rip it apart and try to replace packages was not an easy task, so it was a hard lesson. Yeah, I, and I think it taught everyone um, uh, a perspective that we actually were talking a little bit earlier about, Tracy, which is open source has allowed us to be very productive. We're getting a lot of product productivity out of open source, but we can never take it for granted, right? So those of us who are in organizations where we're consuming a lot of it, we do have an obligation to make sure that we're active participants, that we're helping the communities be effective, and that where we can, that we have contributors that are contributing back into these projects. Um, one of the things that OpenSSF has looked at is the health of various open, open source projects to understand how many committers are there and obviously how we can continue to provide automation in terms of tools to help those, those uh, groups of developers be more effective because they are volunteers, they're volunteer army. And there is something called the scorecard. Yes. Want to t- tell us a little bit about your scorecard? 
<laughs> well, the, 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 obviously, one of the things that we focused on in Open SSF is developing a scorecard, which can render some perspective to consuming organizations about the health of a particular project. And I think it also gives us um, insight as a governing board as to how we can further help. There are open source projects where I think, frankly, we we as organizations have to consider if you want to continue to use something, if it very, has very limited contributors. Or another option is whether you as a larger organization can help improve that aspect of the scorecard, if you will. Uh, so I think those scorecards are a very important. It's kind of like the consumer reports for open source. Uh, <laughs> it's not going to be uh, perfect, but we can continue to fine tune it based on input from our, our stakeholders. And uh, hopefully it can be a a tool that's uh, useful to a lot of organizations, particularly those organizations who are in financial services or retail or the energy sector or whatever it may be that are just consuming software products and that's not their day job. Software production is not their day job. And I'm hoping that, you know, we are, there's a potential for companies to say uh, like the Cyber Resiliency Act uh, that says, you know, maybe we should just back off on using open source. I'm hoping that they can say using open source is the best way to secure our software, right? Because they've already got, especially around foundations like the Linux Foundation, it's got hundreds of open source projects under its umbrella. And if we can establish some easy ways for projects like the one I work on, Artilius, or like older ones like Jenkins, to be more secure, and the Linux Foundation can help us, and the OpenSSF can be that kind of that, uh, that guide, um, I think that open source will be consumed for years to come, especially when the economy takes a downturn. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, open source, um, from certainly from our standpoint here at IBM, has always been hugely important. We were early, uh, we were early involved in Linux, and of course now we own Red Hat, so we do have a significant responsibility open source from that vantage point. But I do not think it's going away. I think it's up to all of us in the industry and people like uh, you and others that are so involved in the Linux Foundation to make sure that we take the right steps to uh, enable it to be secure going forward. And certainly we don't feel, we feel that there's nothing inherently different about open source than closed source uh, on a security, from a security perspective. Uh, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the opportunity to uh, achieve ransomware or to actually hack into systems is actually caused by naive human uh, mistakes on a daily basis, right? Uh, and so it's those mistakes that often open the door and then allow others to take advantage of perhaps vulnerabilities that are in the software. So there's a combination of things that we need to to think about. Yeah, and opening that door could be so easy. Um, it's, it, it, they're so, it, you know, you're going through your emails and you see something that you think you're supposed to, you, you should read and bingo, you're now right. looking at scanning your PC, which has happened to me more than once, I have to admit. It's such an easy thing to do. Uh, and I, I think the human touch is probably the easiest way to open the door. I don't think we can ever have tamper-proof software. Um, we could strive to get there. I don't know if we'll ever be 100%. Um, there's no way to put a plastic top or cap on top of our, our software like you can a bottle of aspirin, but it is the human touch that opens the door. Absolutely. Uh, clicking on those links is so easy to do even by accident, right? When a text comes in and you're, you, you, you know, react too quickly or whatever it may be, 
or, um, you know, we see lots of naive behavior around passwords, of course, continues to be a common vector. Password equal password is not a good idea. Uh, password equal spot, the name of your dog is probably not a good idea. But those are all kind of things that we can endeavor to train people about, make them more aware uh, that these are are not uh, good protocols to even in their private life to keep them safe, safe as well as, you know, in an organization. Absolutely. So, Jamie, you have um, survived in this technology world as a woman <laughs> for quite some time, and you have succeeded in it. <laughs> what is your secret? Uh, well, I'd like to say that I, you know, I had a lot of, of secrets, but I, I, I believe <laughs> one of the things that's really uh, been compelling to me, it's really all been about the people. So what's really encouraged me to move from one position to the next or take the next risk, if you will, is just the opportunity to solve these really complex problems. Uh, when I started in in IBM as a, as a software programmer, I certainly never believed that I would actually be involved in hardware or supply chains or manufacturing. So it does demonstrate uh, the journey that you can take, and you can't really plan that journey out. But what really continues to inspire me is working with really smart people in the context of creating innovation and then understanding how that innovation can affect so many downstream consumers and clients and the things that they can do with it. Um, I have my little model quantum computer over here somewhere. A little, it's just a little model. Looks. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I think that's another example of such cool innovation on the horizon where once we get this machine to production capability, we'll be able to solve problems that aren't even solvable today with classical computers. Wow. Uh, and that's really what keeps me engaged. There are times, Tracy, where, you know, you really get frustrated and you're like, how can I deal with some of these folks I have to deal with? But then this inspiration that comes from something like this uh, keeps you hanging in there. I would say that one of the challenges I do find is there, there are very few women. I was so glad to see uh, some of the women on the OpenSF and Linux Foundation uh, because there are very few women leaders in technology. And that is something we need to do, I think, to inspire the next generation of women. Why is it why is it fun to be here and what can you do with this kind of a career path? Well, I was reading a little bit about what you're up to in your spare time. And it sounds like you um, you support that. You, you uh, walk the walk. You don't just talk the talk. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, in addition to the OpenSSF, which has been an amazing opportunity to work with the Linux Foundation, I'm also the board chair for the largest community college in this region, Wake Tech Community College. And it's one of the largest in the United States. It's got 75,000 students. Uh, we have about eight campuses. We're, we're rich here in terms of support from the community. And this is a very much of a growing area because I'm in Research Triangle Park, North Carolina. Uh, but that has been a significant give back from my perspective because I feel like the community college is really helping a lot of individuals who would otherwise be stranded, who would not have an opportunity for effective life, effective career. Uh, we're really motivated to understand and how to get kids that didn't do well in high school at all, that perhaps didn't even succeed in basic math and English into a viable role that allows them to have an effective life here in our community. Uh, and then we have a lot of transfer opportunity if they're in IT disciplines or associate degree disciplines to transfer to the other universities in the region and get their bachelor's degree, 
and 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 go on from the, from there. So we think of it as a ladder. Uh, one of the most inspiring things is to hear about kids who were part of the foster care program, who really grew up without parents in many cases, and to hear their success stories that when they get to the community college and are able to get a nursing degree, or perhaps they become automotive repair mechanics, which is a very lucrative job in our region. Or I met this one gentleman who uh, got his IT degree at the community college, went to NC State, and eventually became um, got a master's degree in analytics. So it's just it's just so encouraging to hear these stories and uh, of the journeys that these folks are taking. Are you seeing more uh, young women go into STEM at the at the at that college? I, I, I'm saying that it. it for women, I believe that it could be larger still because we still need to inspire uh, women earlier on that STEM is a career path for them. Certainly when you look at nursing and those kind of uh, uh, areas, it is predominantly women, right? And that's a big part of what the community college does. But I think in IT disciplines, cyber and other disciplines, there's still not enough women. But what I can tell you about the community college population is that it's very diverse. And so when we think about diversity, in terms of reaching that community, I think we're being very successful. And that is, and when I go to graduation and look at everyone walking across the, the stage, that's really what inspires you, that you're giving a lot of people really a significant opportunity. So, you know, we've interviewed, um, I've, I don't know how many of these interviews we've done, but almost <laughs> in every case, um, the person we interviewed started as a software programmer. I myself started as a, a programmer. I think that is the entry level job, right? Um, you, you really can't even do testing properly unless you have some background in software programming. Uh, and that one of our uh, previous uh, episodes, we did talk a little bit about Microsoft's Copilot and how that, and I predicted that that may be um, a way for more women to start getting uh, involved in software programming, uh, that it's going to change or disrupt that entry-level position. And we might see two-year colleges that have a two-year program and certification and programming that use tools like Copilot. Any thoughts on that? Well, I think that any tool or approach that enables uh, individuals to be effective earlier is good. So we certainly, and I certainly believe that apprenticeships are fundamental in, in, in improving this uh, for many individuals and not just women, because it gives you an entree point without having to go to school for four years uh, you can get into the workforce. And then if you choose to go back and then get a higher degree, that's up to you. So I think anything that enables us to tap into that skill earlier is really, really important um, and 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 will make a difference. Um, you know, it's really about creating this ladder of opportunity. And many individuals don't have the luxury of just stopping and going to school for years without working. And so to really get more individuals involved, um, I think that's important in terms of the socioeconomic uh, aspect of it. Now, I believe a lot of women have chosen not to go into some of these fields in the last few years because they're seeing other fields as more attractive. We have to do a better job of inspiring women uh, back into software programming, in my view, because we're able to demonstrate the problems that they can solve, how they can really change the world through programming, the kind of... Uh, Things that we've we've seen in movies like Hidden Figures, where those ladies you know, changed the world, they helped us fly to the moon, and those kind of things. That really is the art of the possible with these jobs. But we have to make sure we're inspiring 
uh, young ladies when they're 10, 11, 12, et cetera. I feel like they should make that movie required viewing in every, you know, middle school class in America. You know, I remember when I watched it, I didn't know any of that. It was just so empowering to to see that. So I love that. I love that you're doing that. And I love that you talk about it in terms of not just women, but diversity in general and how important that is. And and it's so nice to see an environment of really strong um, community college. I mean, that seems like a format we could roll out across the country. People don't necessarily need a four-year degree to succeed, right? And it, and it's sometimes, like you said, it's a starting point to higher education. Maybe they can find that, and a lot of companies will support and pay for that once they start working. So I think that's a, it's a great program, and, and, and um, it's nice to hear about what you're doing there. Do you remember what they called those women? No. Davey, do you remember what they called them? The, uh, they were the computers, right? Yes, they were the computers. <laughs> Talk about yeah. ironic. Yeah, and I only know that because I actually read Hidden Figures, the book. The book I highly recommend. The movie's amazing. The book is even more amazing. It's so well written. Um, and it really was uh, something that many people do not understand is that the computers were all women back in those days because all the men were off at war. And so it was the women that actually took up this skill group and it was predominantly women until the men found out how much fun it was and they all got into it. <laughs> uh, uh, so the peak of women being in software programming was probably in the mid eighties uh, coming out of college and it's been declining ever since. So that is something we have to turn around. I am hopeful when I look at domains like quantum, when I work with our quantum team, quantum is such an interdisciplinary area where chemists are working with programmers who are working with engineers who are working with quantum physicists, that it tends to be like, I think computer science was in the early days where you had these moonshots, right? It was about getting a task accomplished, whether it was the social security system or the moonshot, or uh, whether it was um, another good example is the UPC code or creating the airline reservation systems. All these things were really big moonshots. And I think that quantum is a bit like that right now. You get this interdisciplinary team of people that are building machine, but you have to build it in the context of what kind of problem you're trying to solve with it. And chemistry and those kind of problems are at the forefront. And so I see a lot of women involved in that particular domain. That's pretty exciting to me. That's amazing. I'm glad. I'm so glad to hear that women are, are part of that. Um, and we need to get them on Tech Strong Women, right? Right. Absolutely. <laughs> I recommend some folks for you and and just stay away from quantum algorithms. Otherwise, your audience might um, you'll have to go into uh, back to differential equations and physics. Ah, that's so, scary. <laughs> I don't know. It may not be too bad to show a woman nerding out. I have totally <laughs> with that. Do that. That is for sure. Some of those ladies can certainly do that. Uh, well, Jamie, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, what a great, great background on IBM and the things that you've been up to and how you guys just plowed through COVID and came out the other side with all sorts of great new stuff that is so important to everyone around you and around the world. And we just really appreciate you being here. Um, Tracy, you got anything to wrap this up for me with? 
<laughs> no, I just want to say, uh, Jamie, thank you so much uh, for doing this call for us. Uh, we could probably do another, easily do another hour with you. You have Absolutely. so much knowledge to share. And, you know, being an example for women that are, you know, maybe watching this because they know who you are from <laughs> Wake Community College, I hope that they they have a met or have someone to look up to and say, hey, I could do that. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me, ladies. It was a real pleasure. And um, I look forward to maybe coming back in the future. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. <laughs> All right. Well, everybody, thank you so much for being with us today for another episode of Tech Strong Women. Stay tuned for some more great shows here on Tech Strong. Thanks. Bye-bye.